another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Professor Akhil Amar again. Hello, Akhil. And I'm Akhil Amar, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Andy Lipka again. Akhil informed me that he uh, notes that I start every episode exactly the same way. Um, But fortunately, he considers that a feature, not a bug, so... Really oh, I, I think that. it's very cool. Just like the, the intro and the outro music and all the rest. It's, you know, you, our audience knows what they're getting. And for those of you who are new, welcome aboard. We hope you enjoy the ride. It's a very fun conversation. And if you like it, there are two years worth of archives at your disposal, and they're all free. This is Andy Lipka's and Ever Scholar's Gift to the World. Well, and Akil's, of course. He's he does put in some time here, believe it or not. Time yeah, about one fifth, maybe, of what you do. Well, that's not the so point. So thank you. But your, I guess, your time is worth five times as much. So there we go. But anyway, um, just some some updates quickly. First of all, on EverScholar last week, we talked about the fact that EverScholar was opening registration for its courses, including. Uh, for some of its some new courses, including one with Professor Amar and Gordon Wood and Paul Grimstad from Yale. And boy, that was an overwhelming response. Thank you, audience. Um, the course is full. There's a wait list. And uh, we're going to run another section of the course, which is going to come from the wait list. It also is almost full. But if there are other podcast listeners that are interested in taking this course when it's offered, Go to akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two. That's basically our podcast site on Akil's own website, as opposed to Apple Podcasts or something like that, where we also appear. Um, but here, this because it's a web page, you can interact with it, and there's an opportunity to s- submit a question. And if instead of a question, you say, "I want to be in the course," when I, you know, then you'll uh, that will help you, or even better. Just go to everscholar.org and register for the wait list. It's free to be on the wait list, and that will give you, you know, priority going. If I could just jump in on, on just on that. Okay. Last week, we did a longer infomercial than we almost ever do for Everscholar. You, Everscholar, you know, is our sponsor, and, and you're the founder of Everscholar. And we don't usually do a long infomercial, but we did. And we did it because there's going to be this Everscholar course and that I'm doing with the great Gordon Wood, who has been on this podcast. And here's what you said. You said, gee, um, this may be, um, there may be high demand for this audience. So if you're interested, move quickly. That was not BS. Okay. Cause it turns out, I just want the audience to know that we're no BS podcast. It sold out what, even before you formally opened registration almost, um, and I mean, yeah. that people yeah. in this podcast, our podcast audience got preferential treatment you know you got to the front of the line which is what we promised and andy delivered that so i think we had like twice as many people immediately register even like just within seconds of formal opening of registration because we had a whole bunch of people many podcast people in advance that's right yes we we, twice as many is right look it's going to be just as amazing and by the way i spoke to professor grimstead yesterday akil has agreed to uh, offer another section of the course another another instance of the course we haven't set the time or place yet um and he he offered to do that and uh, i spoke to professor grimstead he's in too and i haven't spoken to gordon yet but we'll find out about that i suspect that he'll be in but we'll see so so and that's because we like doing this stuff andy Mm -hmm. because we like interacting with students 
ever scholars the same way we like interacting with our podcast audience who send send us great questions and we're doing this because we actually believe in public education and because we we have fun talking to each other uh, last week you you pushed me and pulled me and you know and stretched me and and you were the socratic professor and by the end you know, Socrates had taught the slightly dim-witted student that the dim-witted student's position wasn't entirely, you know, what the dim-witted student thought um, his position was going in. So that was that was very cool. That doesn't happen all the time. You know, for me, when I actually kind of, as it were, change my mind or realizing my position wasn't actually exactly what I thought it was. So that was very fun. And that's the sort of thing, audience, that you will get in an EverScholar experience if you ever... I choose to sign up. And just one final word, because we want to, one of the great things about our podcast that we don't have a lot of banter or you know, right. sort of extraneous stuff. But um, just to wrap up on, on EverScholar, the China course, which we mentioned, which is in November, November 2nd to 5th in Boston and Cambridge, China Encounters the World on China Foreign Policy. There's uh, either one or three spots left in that course, depending on... Um, technical matters. And uh, so you might want to grab it. Um, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I'm not going to go into it in detail. If you want to hear more about it, you can listen to last week's or if you want to read more about it, look on the website. Now, last week we promised you uh, more on the Trump trial and issues that were raised by the, the latest one in particular, uh, the latest, latest one, <laughs> which is uh, right now it's it's D.C. Georgia may take over that title before this even airs. Who knows? But right now, D.C. is the, the latest one. The trial on um, matters related to, I guess, election interference or election mm-hmm. subversion. Um, and we talked a lot about whether this was preferable to impeachment or not. And uh, so we're going to mostly move on from that and talk about other issues uh, regarding this trial. But just to give you one other update, one of the one of the arguments that we were making about impeachment is that it has the virtue of being very clean if the if the uh, prosecution has you know in its mind disqualifying Trump from holding office again. There's really nobody out there that's claiming that an impeachment, if it were a valid impeachment, um, could include disqualification from office as a one of its punishments. And we mentioned this article that was going to be coming out from uh, Michael Stokes Paulson and Will, William Bode. Um, I wanted to post it on our website, but it wasn't on SSRN yet, um, And but now it is. And in fact, uh, it's been written up quite a bit. The New York Times had a piece about it. Um, I think the Washington Post also covered it and probably other news outlets as well. Um, And uh, so it's getting a lot of attention. And so we're going to tease for you right now that uh, the authors of that article have agreed to come on our podcast. And so we're going to have an episode in a couple of weeks with uh, those two eminent professors, um, Professors Paulson and Bode, and we're going to talk about their article. And if I could just jump in here and cavell a little bit, and this is a Marcus Constitution, I want to tell everyone, they're not just very distinguished professors, which they are. They're friends of mine. Will Bode was my teaching assistant, my head TA. In fact, I, you know, I wrote his clerkship letter of recommendation. I've, you know, loved him ever since he, he was a student, I believe, in his first year 
at Yale Law School in a crim pro class. He stayed overnight at my house and I hold him in very, very high esteem, not just as a scholar, but as a human being, as a friend. Mike Paulson was my my law school roommate, uh, one of my closest friends in the world. When he got married, there were about 20 people I'm not related to him. Um, I was one of the 20. And when I got married, they, it was a very small ceremony. I think there were maybe eight people not related to, to me. Um, and, and Mike was one and his, his lovely bride, Kristen, was another one. So they're going to come on this podcast and they're friends and we're going to actually ask them hard questions and they're going to make their case. Second and related point, we told you, audience, about their piece before anyone else did, before Adam Liptak and the New York Times. And then the rest of the world said, oh, this is important. Steve Calabresi jumped in on the same topic. And you've heard from him on this podcast, several episodes. I had a copy of um, Mike and Will's piece. They sent it to me. We could have uploaded it, but we didn't because I didn't have permission to do that. It was an early draft. Let me tell you, finally, that I'm um, just because I've been talking to Mike, they're not doing any other media things. Will has his own podcast. So we might talk about that. And, and we've talked about Will's podcast with, with Daniel Epps, but, but they got tons of invitations immediately to do MSNBC, MSNBC, MSNBC. Oh, and MSNBC, of course, and CNN. Not so much, I think, from Fox. Um, funny about that. Mm. Um, but they turned them down and they accepted our invitation, Andy, you know, almost immediately. And they did it, I think, honestly, for a couple of reasons. One, because they are friends. Two, because they're serious scholars. And you can't have actually a serious scholarly conversation on television. I've, I've done television. I've done Fox. I've done CNN. I've done MSNBC. It's a few seconds and it's not with a peer and you don't get into, you know, the details. They've done a serious piece. It has raises all sorts of questions. I'm not sure I completely agree with everything in what they've written and, and maybe Andy not too, but we're going to do the same kind of thing that we've done in the past, for example, on section four of the 14th Amendment with the great Jack Balkan and the great um, Cyprakash. Remember, my argument is from last week, and go back and listen to the episode if you haven't, from a certain point of view, impeachment is actually the most fitting and proper. And, and let me just highlight, just because we're going to talk about, here's why it's better than criminal prosecution, because the sanction is disqualification, and that's not true for an ordinary criminal prosecution. Oh, and because it has a certain political legitimacy to it, because the grand jury is not from one city, whether it's a pro-Trump city or an anti-Trump city, whether it's Florida or D.C., it's from all of America because the grand jury is the House of Representatives. The trial jury is the Senate. Again, it's not from one city, not from one place in Florida, like Mar-a-Lago a trial will be, or this new one in D.C. It comes from all America and so that's another advantage. It has a certain legitimacy to it. These are pol political figures judging other political figures. That's better. He will only be convicted and disqualified in an impeachment proceeding if members of his own party vote against him. That has a certain legitimacy. People are going to say in D.C., oh, it's just a Democratic town or something. That's not true of the Senate. It's not, you know, an entirely Democratic Senate. On the flip side, one in a weird holdout, you know, one ridiculous person who's impervious to the evidence slips onto a jury that hangs a jury. That's not true in a criminal case. That's not true in the Senate. Two thirds is actually a good number. It's the Constitution's mechanism for maintaining purity of office. It's actually a good one. So it's better, I said, than a criminal trial in all sorts of ways. It's also, I think, cleaner 
then Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which we are going to talk about, because that one raises all sorts of questions about the word insurrection, about the word engage, about aiding and abetting, you know, enemies of whom, all sorts of complexities with Section 3 that are just detoured by the impeachment clause, which permits disqualification, even if it's not an insurrection or engagement or adhering to enemies and, and um, aid and comfort. So that's a uh, you know a, a quick summary of some of the points that were made last week, and and uh, we you know sort of rehash them a little here because they do lead into some of the things we're going to talk about this week, um, starting now. So uh, so the, so how how does that lead in? Well, uh, let's take the issue of which Akil just sort of you know brought up the issue of venue. Where is the trial? Now we're not talking about an impeachment trial. Now we're talking about the actual trial, which is going to take place, barring a you know plea bargain, which seems unlikely. The trial would, as it as it stands now, is set for Washington D.C. He was charged in Washington D.C. and, by some reckoning, perhaps that the crimes alleged took place in, in Washington D.C. If maybe they took place in other places as well, but they took place at least in Washington D.C one would say, if crimes they are. Ex-President Trump has raised the, the question that perhaps the, the trial should be moved. And not only he has raised this question, but we've read, for example, that prominent attorney and law professor Alan Dershowitz uh, has written that the tri- he believes the trial should be moved from, from Washington, D.C. Um, so, Akil, why don't you uh, weigh in on this? Uh, first of all, you know, specifically with, with reference to this case, but also in general, what are the issues involved in so-called change of venue? And uh, is this something that you've, been, that you've thought about for some time, or is it something that uh, is new in your mind now? Yeah, thanks. I've thought about it a lot. That was a softball. That was a setup. Yes, um, it was. So Alan Dershowitz is a friend. He's been on our podcast. And what criminal defense lawyers do is defend. And they come up and, and they... They are hammers of a certain sort, and they're looking for nails to pound. And so he's often going to see the world through the perspective of a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and it might be to Trump's advantage to move the thing anywhere but D.C. I get it. But that's not who I am. I'm a constitutional scholar. I'm going to look at it you know, from through a different lens, and I'm going to tell you some things about the Declaration of Independence. Oh, and Alan Dershowitz actually wrote a book on the Declaration of Independence. It's an interesting book. He's written, I think, at least 30 books, maybe more, maybe 50. I, I, I don't know. But one of them is about the Declaration of Independence. I'm going to tell you the Declaration of Independence has something to say about this. And what it has to say, I'm going to give you more details, is we hold trials where the crime occurred, even if the defendant doesn't like that. And I'll give you the backstory. You use the word venue, and that's where the the trial happens. There's a related word, and we've talked about it in previous episodes in connection with Mar-a-Lago, vicinage. It's where the jury comes from. And in theory, you could have a jury from place X that actually is transported, carted over to some area Y. The trial takes place in Y. That's where the venue is, but the jury comes from X. You could imagine that. So that's vicinage. Why do I mention that? Because let's take impeachment, which I did talk about, which I think segues in, into all of this. In an impeachment trial, it would be in D.C., okay? Um, same venue, 
but a slightly different vicinage, you see, I argued, because in effect, I'm saying the jury is coming from all of America rather than the residents of D.C., as would be the case in an ordinary uh, criminal prosecution. Okay, so you see, there's a difference between venue and vicinage. Okay, back to first principles. I try hard not to be partisan. So when it came to Mar-a-Lago and the uh, Mar-a-Lago criminal prosecution by the federal government, of Donald Trump, same independent prosecutor, Jack Smith. That was about improper handling of classified material and then lying to investigators, a whole bunch of stuff. And here's the position I took. I said, the center of gravity of that offense was actually Florida. That's where most of the things happened. That's where the witnesses are. That's where the physical evidence is. Yes, maybe some things happen outside that, but that's the center of gravity. That's the appropriate place to try that. That's the appropriate venue and vicinage. This was my position, knowing full well that that's, you know, more of a Trump-friendly jurisdiction. It's his home base. Mar-a-Lago is, is right there. The trial judge, as it turns out, you know, was a Trump appointee. And I said, that doesn't disqualify her. And that means, by the way, you know, it's what sauce for the goose is going to be sauce for the gander when we talk about DC. But I said, that's actually the appropriate place for the trial. Maybe it isn't the only place, but I'm glad that the special prosecutor didn't try to be too clever, tricky, brought it where the crime took place in in the main. If those are my criteria for the Mar-a-Lago case, and they were, then my criteria for this one would be, well, here, the basic gravamen of the offense, the center of gravity is D.C., Some of this is connected with all sorts of literally blood that spilled on the streets of D.C. on January 6th, in part because it's it's connected to to Trump's efforts to to try to prevent a peaceful transfer of power to undo the results of an election that he actually did lose. Now, there's some complexities about that we'll talk about later, about false electors versus fake electors versus contingent electors. So we're going to talk about all the legal complexities that you might not hear about elsewhere, but D.C. is the proper place. I'm going to tell you what the Constitution says about this, what the Declaration of Independence says about this, but our regular podcast audience will know that I defended basically Florida as the proper venue and vicinage for the the documents case, the, the classified material case. It's true that uh, that you know the judge in the case in Florida is perceived as a judge that's uh, favorable toward to Trump in some way, um, and the opposite in D.C. Um, but I, I would say that um, the electorate is not as uh, monolithic in Palm Beach County um, as it is in Washington, D.C. In fact, Trump lost Palm Beach County in 2020. So it's not, even though he, you know, he lives there, and it's true the people that live right around Mar-a-Lago probably voted for him, in greater numbers, maybe. Um, it's not true that, uh, you know, I'm not saying that this is decisive, but this is something that might be mentioned in response to your your point. That Good. The now, I th- is is, isn't the trial taking place in Miami? So that may be Miami-Dade County and not Palm Beach County? That, that's, that's, um, that's probably true. That's a fair point. But even though he might have carried Dade, I think Miami-Dade, uh, I don't mm-hmm. think it was overwhelming by any means. Okay. But to me, you nailed it. It doesn't matter whether it's a Trump appointee or not a Trump appointee. It doesn't matter if it's a pro 
Trump district or an anti-Trump district, we try to just play by the rules. And the rules are, I'm going to give you the, the relevant constitutional text in just a second, and the Declaration of Independence background and the originalist history behind all this, which is astonishingly relevant. The rule, you know, Amar's rule is that juries are in their nature local, and the locality that should adjudicate the crime is the locality where the crime occurred as a general proposition. Just to give you those numbers, in Miami-Dade County, um, Joe Biden took 53% of the vote in that county, and Donald Trump mm-hmm. took 46% in 2020. Mm-hmm. So that's that's actually somewhat representative of the country. You know, that's pretty close to the national numbers, in fact. But um, is it and relevant? that's not true in D.C. You, you, why don't you give them the D.C. numbers, Andy? Yeah, the, the D.C. numbers were, were quite overwhelming, 92.5% for uh, Joe Biden, and uh, 5.4% for Donald Trump. The Constitution says the following. This is Article 3, and then I'll also read you the Sixth Amendment. But even before there are Bill of Rights, here's what the Constitution says. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury. And such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed, but when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. So the future perfect. So several things there. Okay. One is note that they're actually thinking about impeachments. Okay. Impeachments are criminal proceedings of a certain sort, even though they limit punishment in the ways that we talked about last week and, and rightly so. And in a way, even impeachment does give the defendant a jury of sorts. It's just a very different one than the traditional common law jury, which is 12 good men and true coming from one locality. The, the impeachment jury, in effect, is the Senate coming from all of America. Now, this language talks about a state where the crime occurred. Now, when it came to Mar-a-Lago, that was Florida. That is a state. So that was kind of easy peasy. This is a little trickier because I think mainly the crime took place in D.C. It's not a state, but the the relevant principles you see, I think, by extension and analogy would be, well, if it took place in a state, the jury should come from a state. If it took place in D.C., the jury should presumably come from D.C. Now, that's not the words of the Constitution. The words are to say when it doesn't occur in a state, the trial shall take shall be at such place or places or places as the Congress may by law have directed. So there is this idea, ideally, it's the future perfect tense. And this is what I learned, you know, you, you, I learned my English grammar through my foreign language classes because they didn't teach English grammar in English courses. But the future perfect tense shall have been done is all about how Congress actually in advance should specify the proper location of the trial. So we shouldn't be making up rules after the fact. That's That's good. Now, let me reminds you of the language of the Sixth Amendment, which goes above and beyond the language of Article 3. Oh, let me tell you one other thing about that language. It's not about the criminal defendant's rights. It's just that the trial of all crimes shall be by jury. Whether the defendant wants that or not, that's where it's supposed to be. And throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, it was thought, and correctly so, by the Supreme Court, unanimously so, Alan, you know, my friend Alan Dershowitz, unanimously so, you know, by the people closest in time to that, that you couldn't move the trial even if the defendant wanted to, because shall means shall, and all means all, and and that's it. And I'm going to tell you why they thought that in just a minute. And they're not talking about rights of the accused. 
They're talking about the structural elements of a trial. And they also, in effect, don't permit bench trial. And even if the defendant wants a bench trial, you know, you're not entitled to a bench trial. It says it's, it's got to be by jury. That's because they're thinking of the judiciary bicamerally, just like the legislature is the House and the Senate. A court is the judge and the jury. The judge is, in effect, the, the upper house and the jury is the lower house. And the, the two of them together create the judicial department and the Senate acting without the house isn't the legislature and a judge acting without the jury isn't a proper um, judiciary, at least when it comes to criminal cases. And that's that. Okay. And there's structural reasons because it's not just about the defendant's rights. It's about legitimacy and the people's rights. And you can't waive that defendant because it's not just your right to waive. And the prosecutor can't either because the rest of us want to see the process. Yeah, just about this this idea about the people's rights. You know, it's interesting in this case, I think, because who are the people? Are, is it the people of, of the District of Columbia or is it the people of the United States? Because you could argue that the people of the United States might want broader representation on the jury. Maybe that's an argument for impeachment. Or you could argue that, no, there was harm done, blood was spilled in D.C. or, or on the streets of Bologna. Um, and, yes. Uh, and the, and the, the people in, in D.C., well, you know, they have, they have a certain familiarity here. Right. Um, and they even have a certain, um, they've suffered some harm, and this is part of their, uh, yes. having the trial in their yes. locale with their and, and, jurors are part and we'll of their we'll go to the historical so. background, just that, okay? Because okay? the people of the United States in the Constitution have actually committed themselves to a certain idea of localism. So I'm about to transition to... The Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights sounds in localism, in part, throughout the Bill of Rights. I'll give you illustrations in just a second. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. Okay? doesn't talk about states being limited by speech, press, petition, assembly, um, free exercise, um, non-establishment. And indeed, states are allowed to have established churches, and Congress can't disestablish that church under the First Amendment. The First Amendment says you can't make a law, Congress can't make a law, respecting an establishment of religion on the topic thereof. Congress can't have a national religion, national church, yes, can't establish a national church, but Congress can't disestablish state churches. Not only does the First Amendment not apply against the states, it protects states' rights initially before um, the Civil War to have established churches in some States did have established churches, and Congress couldn't get rid of that. The First Amendment, to that extent, is a local option idea. It's a Tenth Amendment-like idea. It's saying the federal government, the central government, should butt out local option. In Europe, they call that curious regio eus religio. The Peace of Augsburg of 1555 and the Peace of Westphalia of 1648 tried to bring peace to Central Europe by saying there's going to be no empire-wide religious policy. It's going to be up to local option. The religion of the prince is the religion of the principality. That's 1555, 1648, curious regio, eus religio. That's the original First Amendment. It's a states' rights idea, of part, at least on what we call the non-establishment clause, but they might have said the respecting clause. The Tenth Amendment, that's part of the original Bill of Rights. It's a states' rights provision saying stuff that's not given to the federal government or prohibited to the states is sort of often left to the states and to the people thereof. Okay, so that's a localist idea. The Congress shall make no law is a localist idea of sorts, especially in the Establishment Clause. The militia of the Second Amendment, those are local militias against an imperial center. 
And then the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Seventh Amendments are all at their core about juries. We'll talk about the Fourth in just a second. But the Fifth Amendment is about grand juries. Sixth Amendment is about criminal trial juries. Seventh Amendment is about civil juries. And juries are local bodies going back hundreds of years in America and England. The Fourth Amendment, our audience will know, is in my view all about juries because it's about actually when the central government misbehaves, you can, when they search or seize you improperly, and we may talk about some of that today, Andy, we'll, we'll see, you can sue them for damages and that's a local jury. So why all these local aspects of what we call the Bill of Rights. Rules about bail and excessive fines in the Eighth Amendment actually are limiting judges in situations where judges aren't acting with juries when they're, uh, when they're setting bail and sentencing people. So why such localism? Because the American Revolution was a localist rebellion, a series of a local alliance against an imperial center. That's Star Wars. It's a ragtag team, a motley assortment of smugglers and amateurs against an evil empire. It's Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Lando Calrissian. Star Wars is the story of the American Revolution against Action Imperial Center. And we're nervous about a central standing army and a central government far away that's unrepresentative. And locals were the heroes of the American Revolution, local assemblies, local juries in ways I'm going to talk about a little bit more. And the Constitution is a very nationalizing thing. We, the people of the United States, in creating an indivisible union, there was anxiety about that, localist anxiety. The people who vote against the Constitution were, in the main, we call them anti-federalists. They might have called themselves federalists because they believe in, you know, localism, federalism rather than nationalism. But in order to get the Constitution ratified, people who were supporting it said, okay, we'll add some amendments. And these amendments are about liberty. Yes, very much individual liberty, but they're also about localism and states' rights. The ratification process of the Constitution renegotiates the package a little bit, and there's a promise that there's going to be more localism built in. The Tenth Amendment, the Congress shall make no law, the First Amendment, militias, juries, state churches. So now let me read you the Sixth Amendment, now that you have that general background. This is a set of amendments that are local in their nature. It's localism and liberty. And today we don't think those are maybe aligned because after the 14th Amendment, we think the national government protects liberty against the states. This is incorporation. This is Hugo Black. But I'm giving you the world before a civil war because in the civil war, you see that's a response to local misbehavior and slavery and censorship and suppression. But the American Revolution is an, a, a product of actually locals allying against an imperial center. Big picture, Marcus Constitution. The const I'm an originalist. The Constitution, it, you can't understand it without understanding the history. It's a history of America, especially about our wars, especially about our constitutional wars, especially about the revolution and the civil war. And this is what we're talking about every scholar, actually. But the revolution, you see, is actually a localist thing. And the civil war is a nationalist thing. So the civil war is going to have all these amendments saying Congress shall have power. Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, Congress shall have power. Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, Congress shall have power. Section 2 of the 15th Amendment. But the original Bill of Rights is not quite like that. This is the thesis of my article, the Bill of Rights as a Constitution, which has been uh, you know, widely cited and, and became part of a book that I wrote on the Bill of Rights. Here's the Sixth Amendment. I read you Article 3, okay, and, and it was just a structural idea that we have trials by jury. But people, the anti-federalists wanted more, more, more. More on that jury stuff, please. They wanted civil juries, Seventh Amendment. They wanted grand juries um, affirmed in Fifth Amendment. You say, might say, well, they already at least have criminal juries. That's the Sixth Amendment. I mean, the Article Three. excuse me, what more do you need? 
oh, they're going to want more localism within the state. So listen to the language. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right. So now this is more individual rights. See, this is Alan Dershowitz. To a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, a future perfect, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. And then it goes on. Okay, so we don't just want a jury from the state, say the anti-federals. We want it from the a part within the state, a district. Now, what's a district? Congress is going to have to specify that in advance before the criminal trial. You know, maybe Florida is going to be, you know, divided up into certain districts. Manhattan itself, actually, it's just, it's got two districts, the Eastern District and the Southern District. Okay. So this is a localist idea, not just a trial in New York somewhere, you know, Albany, Buffalo, you know, Utica, <laughs> um, uh, Seneca Falls, Manhattan, whatever. No, that's not good enough for the anti-federalists. They want it in a district, which is um, a constitutionalization to some extent of the common law idea of vicinage, which is about locality above and beyond a state. Now, Alan, that is about the rights of defendants. Some of those might indeed be waivable. You know, if a defendant, you know, wants to waive certain things, um, it's about the accused rights, maybe some of them. But you can't waive the fundamental right, in my view, to a jury trial. The Supreme Court says you can today, but the founders would have been aghast at that. Unanimously, there's a case at the end of the 19th century, I think it might be called Ship, saying unanimously you can't waive jury trial. And I would say and you can't waive the idea of the jury trial in the state where the trial, uh, where the crime shall have been committed. Uh, yes, technically, D.C. isn't a state. But the broader structural principles behind it say, try the thing where to credit. And now I'm going to tell you about the Declaration of Independence and the history behind all this. Just on the question of D.C. not being a state, though. Um, so it says that Congress can pass a, a statute that says what will happen in the I assume this this goes back to the fact that there were these territories and maybe they were sparsely populated. Right. Congress is going to need to specify what the boundaries of the territory are. You see, because we know what the boundaries of the states are. We know where mm-hmm. Connecticut ends and Massachusetts begins. But in the Northwest Ordinance, is that going to be, that's a whole bunch of territory that the union has in common. Is that going to be one state? Is that going to be five? Is it going to be seven? This includes modern day Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio. So Congress is going to need to organize these territories. Right now, Andy, I'm writing the new book and I've just gotten to the Kansas Nebraska Act, which is about reorganizing, you know, what used to be part of kind of unorganized Indian territory. So, so that's partly, uh, all about where are the lines going to be? Congress is going to need to specify that, and it should do so in advance. So my question here is, has it done so in the case of D.C.? Presumably so. No, I have to be honest with the audience. I haven't looked up the statutes, but of course, there are statutes on the books that basically say the District of Columbia is a district. I'll tell you a little bit about the district. The district used to be 10 miles square, 10 by 10. It's the diamond. And it's along the Potomac River, and it was located there on part as an accommodation to the South. They wanted a Southern venue, in part connected to slavery. Originally, um, this was done by session. Two states actually donated or gave land to the federal government. Virginia was one. Maryland was the other. And it was a 10 by 10 diamond. Later, the land in the, in the District of Columbia was retroceded 
to Virginia. So the Virginia part, the original District of Columbia, was given back to Virginia. It's modern-day Alexandria and, and other places. And the city of Washington, named for George Washington, within the district is on the, the, the Maryland side of the Potomac. Andy, you haven't read the chapter, but th- what I've just been writing, the founders are deeply originalist. They celebrate the founders. It's not a coincidence that they named their capital city for Washington. Okay. Um, and no one ever thinks to, to change that. They don't, they don't change it to, you know, Elizabethtown or, you know, Jacksonville or something like that. And the first decisions that they make are ones um, and this is going to be throughout the antebellum period that are venerating this thing that has been done. So as I, as I said, 1830s, they're not trying to rename the thing Jacksonville. You know, they're building this massive obelisk that's the tallest for five years, the tallest structure in the world. And it's in honor of Washington, not Madison. Why do I say that? Oh, because in the Everscholar thing, Gordon tends to be, a, you know, James Madison, James Madison, James Madison guy. And I'm going to be Washington, Washington, Washington. Okay, and that matters for constitutional interpretation in all sorts of ways. But what I am telling you is the district that went a little far afield there, but the district is created and there are crimes that happen in in the district. And Congress has passed statutes saying when crimes happen in the district, you know, they're going to be tried in the district. I don't I don't have the statute in front of me, but of course, those statutes are on the books and they've been on the books before this crime set of crimes occurred. Now, I need to go back and tell you a little bit more about the Declaration of Independence and the deep background of why the framers, why I believe it's so easy and obvious once you actually know your originalist history to say, we hold criminal trials where proverbial blood spilled, even if the defendant doesn't like that, and especially if the defendant is an official of the central government who might prefer some other venue. And now, folks, let me tell you about the Boston Massacre. And I do tell you about it in the book, The Words That Made Us, which I haven't plugged by name in the last 30 seconds, but which is what we're going to talk about at that Everest Scholar event. And it's in Chapter 2, front and center. It's one of the eight or ten big events that leads into the American Revolution. It's a late winter of uh, 1770, there are troops in Boston, a standing army in an urban area. There's an altercation with the local populace, and shots ring out, and locals are killed. Okay, there's a trial of these soldiers who shot and killed people. And where is that trial? That's in Boston. Now, does the British government love that? No. Americans believe that they have the rights of Englishmen. The rights of Englishmen are to have uh, local trials. And they're not just the rights of the defendants. They're the rights of the community. So a trial is held in Boston. And if we had voting for or against the George, I don't know if he gets, you know, uh, how, how popular he is. Definitely his army is not at all popular. Maybe he might be, but the army isn't. It would be 95 to 5 against the army. Doesn't matter. That's where we hold the trial. Who's the criminal um, defense attorney? Who's the Alan Dershowitz at that moment? His name is John freaking Adams. He defends the soldiers and he gets them acquitted in the main. The the fix wasn't in 
the jury did the right thing. It looked at the evidence and they said, actually, intent isn't so clear here. Oh, my God, it was about intent, you know, and it was, it was complicated. And, and, and so we're not sure they really meant to murder people. To repeat, the officers were in the main acquitted and Boston had showed the world that actually a jury will do the right thing. Now, how did the British react to all of that? They passed a whole series of statutes after the Boston Tea Party. This is three years later, 1773, December. Okay, so three and a half years later. The one other one was, I think, like February, March, 1770. So now there's a Tea Party. Sam Adams is, is acting up in, in certain ways. No one is killed. It's kind of massive Gandhi-like civil disobedience, guerrilla theater stuff. But the Brits are angry at the Americans, and they massively overreact, and they pass a series of statutes. They're called the Coercive Acts. Americans call them the Intolerable Acts. And one of them, the Brits call the Administration of Justice Act. Oh, how is this a very abstract? Americans call it the Murders Act. And it says, in the future, when government officials are accused of crimes, we're going to try them not where the crime happened, but back in jolly old England where they're going to get acquitted. And you might think, well, if you're Alan Dershowitz, the criminal defense attorney, that sounds right. Criminal defendants are entitled to a defense, even if they're government officials. So let's have it in a friendly place. Okay. That's what Alan Dershowitz, the criminal defense attorney might think, you know, and that is how he does think in general and what he's saying about Trump. But Alan Dershowitz, the, the scholar should not think this at all. And Alan, by the way, if you're out there listening, if you want to come, you know, do another episode, we'll be delighted to have you again. But the Declaration of Independence, and George Washington calls it immersion, is outraged by this. And one of the specific elements of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Particulars, the reason why we're revolting is that George has done all these horrible things, sometimes on his own, sometimes with Parliament. And here's what he says. So one thing is we, you know, hate what he said. We are revolting because he has quartered large bodies of armed troops among them, among us. Okay. That's what I just been talking about. Troops in, you know, in, in an urban center firing on people. Next sentence. He says, here's another reason why we're revolting. Say that the uh, Americans, including John Adams, you see he's right there with Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin drafting the declaration. British have protected them, that is these troops, by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. They're objecting to the proposed change of venue. They're saying that's not how we do it. We have local trials here. Even though the defendants might want them moved, no, damn it, that's not what we do in America. That's the Declaration of Independence. That's the background of Article 3, local trials. Um, jury trials of the Sixth Amendment. Let me read you one little passage. So I wrote this. There was a, a thing actually in, in New York, the Amadou Diallo trial, where actually there was a change of venue. And Amadou Diallo was the black man who was shot by the cops um, in um, a case of kind of a mistake. Here's what I wrote back in 2000. This is in the book, The Constitution Today, but it first appeared in a, in a law magazine. Shots ring out in a fast-moving altercation, and a black man lies dead on the city street. The white officers claim self-defense, saying they sincerely, if erroneously, thought they were in danger. A jury acquits. As the country is now aware, these are the basic facts of the Amadou Diallo case. 
but they also describe the Boston Massacre of 1778. One person who fell, probably the first person who fell dead back in 1770 was a mulatto of mixed race background in Crispus Attucks, probably Wampanoag, a Native American, and also African American. Probably the first person to die in this altercation that we call, and it's, it was brilliant rhetorically. They didn't call it the Boston incident, the Boston melee, the Boston riot, the, the Boston tragedy. No, it's the Boston massacre, which suggested, oh, it was intentional. The Americans are brilliant at spin. It's not the Administration of Justice Act. It's the Murderers Act. You know, um, it's, it's not, these aren't merely coercive acts. They are the intolerable acts. I've given you now originalism, good and hard, text and the history behind it. Well, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the Boston Massacre, because um, one of the cases that's cited nowadays when judges uh, offer opinions on denying changes of venue uh, motions is the case of uh, the Tsarnaev brothers committed the, the, the murders uh, at the, uh, on Patriot's Day uh, with, mm-hmm. in connection with the Boston Marathon. Um, and those, yes. and they were not, they were denied a change of venue. Um, yes, so it's, and uh, rightly so. Mm-hmm. I objected to the change of venue in the Timothy McVeigh case. Um, that was done in Oklahoma City. It should have been tried in Oklahoma City. That was my position way back when. Okay, audience members could be wrong. Could be wrong on all this stuff. But the, Andy set me up with this softball question saying, have you thought about this? This has always been my position. And it's going to be my position when I'm sympathetic to the defendant or not Republican or Democrat, I said Boston Massacre should be in Boston and the Amadou Diallo case should have been tried actually, you know, where it happened in uh, a greater Gotham, not in, in Albany. The Mar-a-Lago case should be tried in Mar-a-Lago because that's where uh, the, the documents were and the, the evidence is and, and the witnesses are and most of the crime happened. Um, and here, D.C. Now, I fudged a little bit. You just heard it. Most of the crime, it's, it's possible that some elements transpired elsewhere. I think if you're playing it most straight, you, you try to look at the center of gravity of the offense. That's what I said in Mar-a-Lago. That's what I'm saying now. Okay, so earlier you said that a lot of this is based on the localism that's present in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. Fine. Um, and so you're looking at the, at the founding history for your originalist uh, conclusions. But then we have the Civil War and we have the Reconstruction Amendments. And you alluded to the fact, and of course you've talked about it in the past quite a bit, that a lot of the thrust of the Reconstruction Amendments is a move away from localism, that we can't, this business of trusting the states and trusting locals, you know, that actually backfired in some ways and we got the Civil War out of it. Um, and, we got, and we got a lot of misbehavior by, by, by the South. So we don't really trust them. And so the federal government actually... Uh, has a greater role to play, and we have to have some of the, some of the localist aspects that you mentioned. For example, established churches and that sort of thing. These these go away to some degree, yes. um, in part because of the Reconstruction Amendments, in part because of just a evolution of the society. So my question to you is: Does this Reconstruction Revolution or Reconstruction move? Does this take away from this originalist argument? Is there a new originalist uh, history regarding localism that's relevant here? So, and I mean, the thing that comes to mind is maybe you have a Matil trial or something like that, or you have, you know, you have a, you know, a black man Brilliant. arrested, you know, locally for something Brilliant. you didn't do. You have a local jury. This doesn't seem so great. Perfect. So 
I am thumped my chest saying, oh, audience members, you might want to read the Bill of Rights as a Constitution. It's in 1991 Yale Law Journal. It's one of the 80 most cited articles of all time. It's the first piece I write after getting tenure. And, and I'm proud of it. It's been cited multiple times by the United States Supreme Court. And it's all about localism. The Bill of Rights is way more about localism. Than it's about liberty, of course, but it's about juries and militias and state churches and Congress shall make no law of a certain sort in the 10th Amendment. So it's way more about localism. It's more anti-federalist than we might think. Okay. But then my students come back and say, well, you know, doesn't the 14th Amendment change all of that? And I said, hmm. I don't know. I got I never studied that. And they said, well, that's what summers are for. So I spent a summer researching all this, and that became a, a sequel article in the Yale Law Journal the next year called The Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. Um, and it's all about incorporation. And that's when I just, you know, write about Hugo Black, and I say he's absolutely right. In general, the 14th Amendment applies the Bill of Rights to the states. Now, that's a huge nationalizing move. See, the Bill of Rights doesn't originally apply against the states. That's Barron versus Baltimore. That's the anti-federalist vision. Marshall, in this 1833 case, Chief Justice John Marshall says, gee, the framers of the Bill of Rights were responding to anti-federalist pushback you could say, oh, the First Amendment says Congress, but the other amendments are just passive voice, so they apply against all governments. And Marshall says, no, the anti-federalists would not be amused by that. This was actually a state, it was um, a response to state rights anxiety, and it would be a huge national power grab if we took all these things that passive voice in the, in the other amendments and applied them against states. No, this was only about the federal government. That's barren. Now the states misbehave, and we had a civil war, and now we have nationalized amendments that say Congress shall have power, Section 2 of the 13th, Section 5 of the 14th, Section 2 of the 15th, but also say there are limits on states. So what's that First Amendment say? Congress shall make no law. What does of a certain sort? What does the 14th Amendment say? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law which shall abridge. So no shall make law abridge. But Same words, but now it's states can't do that. And that's the essence of incorporation, these rights now apply against states and localities. That's point one. Um, but then Amar adds a twist in the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. And this becomes my book, my, my first real book that's kind of written as a, a book called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. I had an earlier book that just slapped together some articles, but this one, uh, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Re Reconstruction, is a real book. I published it two days before my 40th birthday because I want to get it you know, out there before age 40. And the second half of this book says, yes, the Bill of Rights now applies against the states. Hugo Black is basically right. Oh, and Will Bode has a new piece about this, by the way, with some co-authors, and um, he maybe we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when he comes on with Jed Nelson and Steve Sachs. Steve is a former student of mine, professor now at Harvard Law School. But I say, Andy, in the process of applying against states, that being incorporating as states, the 14th Amendment actually reconstructs these rights, me, makes them slightly different, because need, they need to be different given the context of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So yes, juries are very, very localist, and that's going to be a problem because the Civil War is a nationalist episode, and the amendments that come out of it reflect that nationalism. How does that play out in juries? And you mentioned Emmett Till in particular. Here's how it plays out. We're now going to have the federal government, in effect, 
reconstructing juries by having some rules about who's on the jury. Who's on the jury? Ordinarily, jurors are voters and voters are jurors. Tocqueville talks about this. Well, the 15th Amendment makes absolutely clear that blacks are going to be voters now. Were there any rules about who could be voters at the founding? Not really so much. The words right to vote don't appear in the founding, and here's why they don't and can't. Because of slavery and race. Because Americans didn't agree at the beginning about that. They were anti-slavery states that got rid of slavery immediately, like um, Massachusetts, gradually, like Pennsylvania. And then there were states that were doubling down on slavery, like South Carolina. There can't be a federal voting rule in the Constitution originally because the states don't agree. So what is the rule for voting in Congress in the Constitution? You get to vote for Congress if you're eligible to vote for your state legislature. And we generally leave that up to states. We say they have to have Republican governments, but there's not a lot of enforcement of what the the outer boundaries of that are. So that's kind of a local option. States decide whether they're going to have established churches or not. But states, the founding, decide who gets to vote in general. And some states have property qualifications and others have different and lower property qualifications and others have none. That's your founding world. After the Civil War, we're going to need more national uniformity. The 15th Amendment actually says the right to vote. 14th Amendment, Section 2, says the right to vote. So the 15th Amendment says you can't discriminate on grounds of race in deciding who can vote. And now that also means, Andy, that, well, if you can vote, you can vote on a jury. And you can't discriminate against blacks in the jury box. If you have a right to vote for a legislature, you have a right to vote in a legislature. So you have a right, the right to vote includes a right to be voted for. And blacks have a right to vote for blacks. So, and Vic Amar writes a piece, jury service as political participation akin to voting. So after the Civil War, we're still going to have juries because the framers believed in juries. But so do the 14th Amendment folks. They actually believe in juries, but the juries are going to be reconstructed. And the big rule is going to be now you have to have blacks as well as whites voting equally on Election Day, voting equally in state legislatures, voting equally in a jury box. And the 19th Amendment is going to come along. And I believe it means that women have to be equal jurors. The court doesn't say that until 1975. The 19th Amendment is 1920. It takes the court another 50 years to get it. And when they do say it, they don't point to the 19th Amendment. This is the problem of not doing originalism. We, the people, actually commit ourselves to equal political participation for blacks, equal political participation for women, and sometimes the court is very, very slow to get on board. We commit ourselves to equality um, in general, racial equality. That's what the 14th Amendment is about. What does Plessy do? It ignores that until Brown versus Board of Education, and then we've had the conversations with Jeffrey Branzell about what equality actually means and how to think about that in the affirmative action context. But yes, 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 Andy, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, the Reconstruction, reconstruct juries. And the main way they do that is by insisting that blacks have to vote equally on juries, just as they have to vote equally elsewhere in America. So it's not quite a renunciation of localism then, is it? No, it's a modification of it because we don't actually like the French, you see, try to obliterate everything after the Civil War and say now it's the year one. These are amendments 
to an, a pre-existing constitution rather than an entirely new constitution. And it, amendments are initiated by lawyers who very much actually believe in juries. Now, Abraham Lincoln is dead by the time the 14th Amendment comes along and the 15th Amendment. But who is Abraham Lincoln? He's a great trial lawyer. He's a great jury lawyer, as was John Adams, as was Alexander Hamilton. These guys believe in jury trial. And one of the things that makes Lincoln such a great politician is he's able to actually talk to ordinary people in an idiom they understand. And his years on circuit as a trial lawyer have honed that skill. And you see him in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, which I'm, Andy, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm actually writing about that today, you know, although the first round is 1854, not 1858. So actually I have three rounds, but, but you see Lincoln, the trial lawyer, the jury lawyer. He's also a railroad lawyer. He's a corporate lawyer. He's both, you know, in that world, you, you know, he's on retainer by the, the, biggest railroads in the state because he's he's good but they believe in juries but they're going to reconstruct those juries racially with the 15th amendment okay well so you're talking about now that, that this takes the form of being unable to exclude certain types of jurors um maybe even that you have to include certain jurors certain certain jurors with certain characteristics Andy, let me just jump in on that because you, you've, you, you, you really helped me make a connection just like you did last week that I didn't before. So when that happens, you know, I just got to share with the audience. Okay. So what does the 15th Amendment say? It says you can't by law exclude blacks from the jury. And a case called Stroud versus West Virginia actually says that. It says that only in the context of black defendants, but I would say it more generally. An act in 1875 passed by Congress in honor of Charles Sumner says there can be no race discrimination against blacks on juries. The Act of 1870 is still on the books today, and it's a cashing out of the 15th Amendment. That's rock solid, okay? So then what happened? There used to be peremptory challenges of blacks. Prosecutors or defense attorneys might just ding blacks. And the court initially, in a case called Swain, said, well, they're not supposed to do that, but what are you going to do? And then a case called Batson came along, this is when I'm in law school and says there can't be race discrimination in peremptory challenges. And the court takes that seriously. There's this kid. It was at the Yale Law School. He wrote a student note about how you can't have race discrimination in peremptory challenges. His name was, still is, Brett Kavanaugh. And he took that really seriously and read his student note. And he writes for a unanimous court in a case called Flowers versus Mississippi about three terms ago, saying the state here has used peremptory challenges in a racial way to ding blacks from the jury. You can't do that. That's a violation of law. I would say of the Constitution, of the 15th Amendment, not just the 14th, but the 15th Amendment and the relevant federal statute. Now, why am I mentioning all that? Because when you're trying to move the venue from D.C., you know, to someplace else, that is a kind of peremptory challenge en masse because let's be very blunt, let's, let's call it straight here. A lot of African-Americans live in Washington, D.C. Andy, maybe you want to just look up, look, look up the, the, the data here. And when you're moving it 
from some other place, unless you're going to actually do just say we're moving the venue, but same vicinage, which wouldn't please anyone because they're still going to say, oh, 95 percent of the people, 92 percent of the people voted for Hillary and only five percent for Trump or something. So they're not going to be satisfied with a change of venue. They want a change of vicinage. They want a different jury. That's a peremptory challenge, you see, of of blacks as a practical matter, because there are going to be very few other places in America that are going to have that racial composition. What are what is it? Um, so it's 46% white, 45% African-American. Yeah. So if you believe in the 15th Amendment idea um, and the perimeter, you should be extra skeptical of efforts to move the jury away, if that's where the, the crime really happened and the blood spilled, away from a place where there are going to be a lot of blacks on the jury. Okay. But we're talking about, okay, that, that, it's, that it's unconstitutional or it's illegal to exclude uh, jurors, but is it required that you include jurors? So you could you if you had a jury, you know, in uh, in D.C. and you know it just worked out that there were, you know, that you have your peremptory challenges and they seem to be okay, and this is the way the pool was or whatever. Do you do you have to? Could you say, well, you know, you need to have half the jury be? It's a it's a brilliant question. You can't do a total quota approach, in part because there are only 12 people, you know, and especially if you do an intersectional analysis, well, do it have to be, if we're 50, 50 white and black, three uh, white men, three black men, three white women, three black women. What about, you know, Asian Americans? Um, who counts as black? What if someone's a quadroon? What's an octoroon? You know, what if you're of mixed race? So you, you, you can't actually go full-blown quota and proportionality. And the court has never required that. There can't be an intentional. Now we're back to Washington versus Davis. You can't formally exclude people and you can't exclude people, even if it's not explicit. But if you're doing it because you're trying to get rid of blacks, and I'm saying, let's be very skeptical, especially skeptical about venue transfers away from majority black or high uh, density black jurisdictions. Let's be very skeptical of that, that, that. But here's how it also connects to our affirmative action conversations with Jeffrey Brenzel. And this, I, want, I can bring in the work of a, another eminent constitutional scholar um, who's been on our podcast. His name is Thick Amar, and he's written a lot about the jury. I mentioned one piece of his jury service as political participation akin to voting. It's in the Cornell Law Review, but he wrote another piece, the, a colleague of his, Alan Brownstein. Uh, it's about hybrid rights. It's in the Stanford Law Review. Here's the, the key point. Our jurisprudence focuses a little bit more on bottom line and on numbers and proportionality in a few domains. And I'm going to tell you, you know, why. And this builds on an, also an article that Dan Ortiz wrote on the myth of intent. I believe it's in the Stanford Law Review. He's a Yale Law School graduate, clerk for Breyer a year ahead of me. So you can't insist on proportionality in every academic department or something. It may very well be without any discrimination whatsoever. It's possible you'll have you know, more people of a certain demographic background in the physics department for all sorts of reasons, cultural and, and otherwise, you may have more males, you, you may have more Jews, maybe they've been inspired by Oppenheimer, you see, growing up culturally. And so, you know, they tend to do that. And other people have been inspired by Jackie Robinson, and, and they focus on baseball or, or Michael Jordan and basketball or Michael Jackson and Prince and Louis Armstrong. So they move into music for all sorts of reasons. We have a free society. People get to choose. Um, and some people go into the family business 
And so it may very well be that you won't have proportionality even in an absolutely just society where the government isn't discriminating in every single pocket. That's at least possible. We have to be open to that possibility. But when it comes to certain things, especially where the pool, uh, and, and the pool just might not be there, you know, in certain areas. And you just can't close your eyes and just imagine that proportionally you're going to have a, a proportionate number of, of really qualified applicants to do cold temperature physics or something like that. It just may not be true it, it, uh, today. But when it comes to jury service, it, 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 yes, it probably should look like America. Every, every voter you know, is presumptively eligible. There, there's, there's no extra criteria here of knowing physics or medicine or, or what have you. And when it also in the voting area, it can't, it's not just an individual right because your vote matters only in connection with other people's votes. You know, whether you actually are a minority or you actually have a, a sufficient call critical mass to actually win 51%, the tipping point. So in voting law, in that um, Allen versus Milligan case, for example, federal statutes focus more on bottom line proportionality. And we do that in voting and jury service and also maybe the military. And now you see why actually the court is um, bracketed the military possibly. There are certain domains. Um, who should be your judges? Joe Biden was explicit that he was looking for a black person. That he was looking for a woman, indeed, that he was looking for a black woman to fill Breyer's seat. He wasn't coy about that. He was open. And for certain political institutions, our tradition has been one that tends to focus a little bit more on proportionality. And these institutions, to repeat, are the areas of voting, jury service, judges and, and representatives, and the military. These are uh, political rights. And, and there we focus more. Actually, our, our law, in fact, does on bottom line proportionality, much more so than in other areas. Well, I think we should explore this question of the makeup of the jury a little further because it's relevant to this question of venue. What you're talking about here is that you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race um, in terms of uh, an individual juror, even in the jury makeup as a whole, really. Um, uh, in, in, and again, here we have this question of exclusion versus inclusion. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, so exclusion would be okay. We can't we can't exclude you peremptorily or otherwise because of your race. Uh, inclusion would be well, we've got to make sure we have a certain number of black jurors because the the community is half black. So how is it representing the the community, even if it's not an absolute quota? Okay, so fine, but. The standard for a juror in general is that they be impartial. That's the real standard. You know, that, so th this is kind of an auxiliary standard. And this has to do more with the right to vote than, than it is the way that, the, that, an, that a, a, a juror would be impartial. Um, okay. Um, so now we're going to determine whether a juror is impartial. There are ways that we do that. One is we do, we do voir dire and we have... Um, certain people that are excluded for cause, the voir dire may, you know, something may show up in the voir dire that makes it very clear to the judge um, and other, and, and the parties that the juror can't be impartial, so they're excluded. But another way is through a peremptory challenge, and peremptory challenges are really a form of discrimination. Because mm -hmm. if, if you are subject to a peremptory challenge, it means that you weren't excluded for cause. Right. Okay, right. so therefore, not everyone agrees that you can't be impartial, 
And one side is saying, well, basically, we don't we don't like this juror because we think, um, you know, that they're not going, they have, they're unfavorable for us. So mm -hmm. those jurors are going to have certain characteristics, possibly. Um, mm -hmm. So so now we get into this question of uh, sort of protected classes. So we said, okay, we can't we can't use a peremptory or other challenge on the basis of race. Um, are there any other things that we can't use it on the basis of? Doctrine today says you can't do race. You can't um, use um, sex. A case called JEB. Now I think that litigants all the time do use race and do use sex. I'm an abolitionist. I think we should abolish peremptory challenges. They're not constitutionally required, and they're just invitations for people, um, the litigants, to jurymander, to take a cross-sectional veneer and actually rest from that, squeeze out of that an unrepresentative jury panel. They are not allowed to take race into account, but they do, and they just get away with it. And they're not allowed to take sex into account, but they do and they get away with it. I think going forward, they're going to say sexual orientation. They're going to say religion, the Supreme Court, you know, um, but that's actually what peremptories are in, in part about. So I'm an abolitionist. I think we should just get rid of it altogether. Uh, um, this has long been my position, a story or two. Who are the other abolitionists? Thurgood Marshall was an abolitionist. Steve Breyer came to be an abolitionist and David Souter. I once debated Johnny Cochran one-on-one -on -one in Georgetown. There were several hundred people that showed up. Mina Totenberg moderated, and, and he was world famous. This is just after the OJ case, and he likes peremptory challenges because it enabled him to actually kind of, you know, tailor the, uh, and get the jury that he wanted in the OJ case. But I don't think it's about the parties. I think it's about legitimacy in society, so I thought that was all deeply wrong. But he's like Alan Dershowitz. You know, he's a criminal defense attorney. Reasonable doubt for a reasonable price is the joke, not for Alan, but, but of course you know, generally uh, that's what, what he does. He's, um, of course, we should speak of him in the past tense because he passed away, unfortunately. He did. And, and he was a, a lovely guy. We got to know each other. We had dinner. At the dinner, Vanita leans over. She was, she was there and she says, his cufflinks are worth more than your entire wardrobe times two, which is true, you know, because I'm a, I'm a schlub, you know, and we're walking from the dinner to the, the venue of the, of the debate. Um, and we each had three tickets to give out. I gave mine to Jeff Rosen and uh, James Foreman. I gave mine to some of my best law you know, students who were in DC. He gives his to Spike Lee, who shows up in the front row, and either Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson, I can't remember which, who doesn't show up, but like we travel in different circles. As I'm walking from the, the dinner to the debate, people are just, because D.C. is a black town, largely, as we talk, uh, we're talking about, and, and people are stopping in their cars. They recognize Cochran. He's like a rock star, you know, and they just stop, roll down the window and say, go, Johnny, go, okay? And they don't even know there's a debate. This is just, and, and, and then I walk in, and it's a largely black audience, and Spike Lee's sitting there in the front row. I'm thinking, oh, my God. These people think this is a sporting event. Oh, my God. These people think this is Joe Lewis against Max Schmeling. And, oh, my God, these people think that I'm Max Schmeling. <laughs> okay. So the first words out of my mouth are, as Thurgood Marshall said, and I'm with him because the first issue is peremptory challenges. We should get rid of peremptory challenges, you know. And then my next sentence saying, you know, I stand with the great Thurgood Marshall in thinking that blah, blah, blah. Okay. Because I just want to make sure that the audience understands this is not what you might think this is here. Okay. 
Peremptory challenges are bad. In a Mars world, we get rid of them. Maybe, Andy, we can put up on the website a piece that I wrote called Reinventing Juries, 10 Suggested Reforms. And one of them was getting rid of peremptories because I think they're just mechanisms for discrimination. You nailed it. Also, I think we should restrict challenges for cause. It is not legitimate objection, in my view, that you know something, okay? What's my standard? You should have the same rules for jury, for cause exclusion, as we do for judicial recusal, okay? Because I think the judges and jury, and there's and one judge who's unfair either way can do a lot of damage, one out of 12 jurors, much less so. So I've been dinged from jurors. I always want to serve, you know, and they always get dinged. So in one case, I, I show up, and I get dinged because I actually know the lawyer. And I'm thinking, yes, but the judge knows the lawyer, and I know the judge. We're a very knowledgeable family. We all know each other, and you don't have to recuse yourself just because you know the, the lawyer. Is that really a basis you know, that I should get challenged for cause just because I happen to know the lawyer in the case? So in a Mars world, you not only have no peremptories, you have a much higher standard for for cause dismissal. You're much more likely to get a cross-sectional jury. Let me just say one thing. There's a very famous article. It's by Harry Calvin and Sherry Diamond. Harry Calvin was the mentor of Owen Fiss, who was my mentor, a very great professor at the University of Chicago, one of the founders of the Supreme Court Review, which Will Bode now co-edits, Small World. Um, and Calvin shows that in a case, a Watergate era case involving Maurice Stans, I think maybe also in John Mitchell, the using challenges for cause and peremptories, the litigants managed to find like the only people in the entire district who had never heard of Watergate, Richard Nixon, Bob Woodward, John Mitchell. So we, we take actually a jurisdiction that has knowledgeable people and we totally dumbed down the jury. And the defendants kind of wanted that, but, and Alan Dershowitz might say, hooray for defendants, but no, that's not actually uh, uh, what a jury should be. It should be a representative cross-sectional institution, maybe even in some ways more demographically representative than the House of Representatives, because, you know, everyone, not, maybe not everyone can be a member of the House or the Senate, but everyone can be on the jury. One, one factoid on House and Senate, I can invoke my dear friend Sandy Levinson here. Andy, what percentage of adults do, would you say, let's say adults over 30 have a college degree and what percentage don't? I would guess about 30%. Have yeah, a I think 30% have a college degree and 70% don't. It's, it's, it's rising, but okay. 70%, okay. Um, only 30% have a college degree. What percentage of the house has a college degree? It's like 99%. Okay, so 70% of Americans don't have a college degree. There might be three people in the house who don't. So it's very unrepresentative in, in certain ways. And there's a, that, there's a divide in America along some of these lines. But on a jury, I think, you know, you don't need a college degree. A jury should be representative, cross-sectional, and it's not about the parties. It's about the public. You used one final word, impartial. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I know you want to jump in, and then I'll come back to what it means to be impartial. Yeah, a couple of comments here. First of all, you know, you mentioned the standards of, judicial recusal and i can hear the eyebrows being raised you know all over the and the eyes going up to the ceiling all mm -hmm. over the the nation because of recent uh you know questions about judicial ethics and and that sort mm -hmm. of thing but and of course 
on the Supreme Court. Yeah, we have episodes and the audience can listen to them. And maybe the audience members, Andy, you know, may be skeptical of what I said. They may be closer to what you said. And that's why we brought in the great Kathleen Clark to give them, you know, a different point of view. Audience, we always try to give you the best arguments on all sides. But I think maybe we could qualify what you said about judicial recusal, that it, you're not necessarily, in my, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're talking about a more mm-hmm. general uh, judicial recusal standard, not the Supreme Court's standards which are basically there aren't standards but the but but there are standards in writing you know for other for other judges and there and here we're, yeah you're absolutely right and my standards are you you don't have to recuse because you were picked by trump um you were appointed by trump and that's aileen cannon judge cannon down in in florida and you don't have to recuse because you weren't picked by trump which is dc you know and that should be true for the jurors Okay, so what if you voted against Donald Trump in 2016 or or whatever in 2020? That's not a basis for recusal, nor is it a basis for recusal that you voted for the fellow. Okay, and the the other thing I wanted to say was, while you're talking about, you know, getting rid of peremptories, I mean, I think if we think, if we stop for a minute and think about what might be arguments in, in favor of peremptories, you know, one of them would include, I think, that you want, you want to exclude the rogue juror because, you know, so that perhaps this might have to go in, you know, in company with some revision of unanimous jury verdicts. I mean, so you're right. And reinventing juries tends to suggest reforms. I say my reforms are a package. Um, I think we should raise the bar for four cause dismissal. We should get rid of peremptories. Here's what that's going to mean. That's going to mean we're going to have more eccentrics on the, the jury itself. You could even say, you know, more crackpots. That, in my view, means that we're probably going to need to rethink unanimity, and it doesn't need to be symmetric rethinking. In impeachment, two-thirds is required for conviction, but a third plus one acquits, you see. It's, it's asymmetric. I say you know, maybe we should have a rule of that 10-2 suffices to convict, and anything less than that is an acquittal. Today, if the jury hangs 11-1 in the prosecution's favor, we retry the case. And then the defendant can be convicted and they can say, well, it's, it's unanimous. It's 12-0. I said, that's only if you count the second proceeding. If you count both, it was actually 13-11. You know, person got 11 votes the first time around and you're just not, not counting that. In a Mars world, yes, there's a whole package of reforms. And here's what's hard. The Supreme Court can't easily do that case or controversy because if it's four different things that need to be done sort of simultaneously, can a court do that in one adjudication? In my world, we should probably rethink unanimity as well. Remember, uh, this is why impeachment is better, because one crackpot doesn't actually prevent justice from being done. One crackpot in the Senate, because only two thirds. So I think impeachment is actually a beautiful device for thinking about uh, Trump's disqualification, in fact. Yeah. I mean, I think this notion of uh, you talking about impeachment, you say, well, one, you know, one crackpot senator doesn't doom the... uh, the impeachment, but that assumes that senators vote as individuals. If you have one crackpot party, and and it's a unified party that that goes in lockstep, so that um, this goes back to questions of um, to what extent you know we have too much allegiance to party, um, you know, in in the uh, legislature um, because if senators vote as individuals, then I think people would have a little more faith and impeachment but if it's well if mitch mcconnell says no then it's no then then you do have the rogue juror in effect 
Um, so that's, but anyway, just, just well, you, a thought. I, I wouldn't the, say you have the rogue juror because behind that rogue juror are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of voters back home in their jurisdiction. And that's different than one genuine. It's, it's harder to be a crackpot senator because you have to be elected senator. Um, and that means lots and lots of people had to have voted for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you know we're, we've spent a lot of time in this, and we still haven't gotten to I think one of the main points. So, which I was trying to get to through a sort of syllogism with a bunch of these questions um, that I was asking. So we have this just to, to re, re, rehash it briefly. Um, we're talking. We've we've broached the topic of, of impartiality and who can be on a jury and who can't, and you know what constitutes a fair trial in terms of the jury, and. So we've established that there are certain things that you can't discriminate on the basis of, but you, but pretty much you could discriminate on almost everything else, right? So you've said that it's okay to try to have informed people on a jury. Um, what about unit uniformity of political persuasion? This is the issue here, uh, the you know that has been raised by Alan Dershowitz and by Trump's attorneys. Well, if Trump only gets four percent of the vote, how can you have? Uh, an impartial jury, you're almost certainly going to have, you know, mostly people that voted for Joe Biden. And how can you vote for Joe Biden and be impartial in judging Donald Trump? So, um, well, um, I would take just a couple things. I still, but now, I, yes, let's talk about impartiality and what it means, you know, how to think about impartiality. But first of all, remember, I am opposed to peremptories altogether and want to re- restrict challenges for cause. And I don't believe that our jurors should be more educated than the rest. No, I, I don't want you to be excluded because you actually happen to know who Maurice Stans is or John Mitchell mm-hmm. you know, is. That means you're just reading newspapers. Fair but but um, I don't think you should be excluded because you, you don't know those things. Uh, my idea of impartiality is almost a statistical one, uh, and a bias is almost a statistical one. I'm not sure that any individual juror is completely impartial. We're all partial. We see the world in a certain way. Um, Andy, we're all, many, many of us members of parties, and party is part of impartial, um, a, a P-A-R-T-I and P-A-R-T. I think actually the Constitution, when you read it, from my point of view, through my uh, lens, it's not so much about impartial jurors as an impartial jury. And the way we get an impartial jury is bringing everyone in statistically, kind of through a random process, and then have them talk to each other. And we, and we don't have a lot of challenges for cause, and we don't have peremptory challenges. Now we get a random cross-section, not just at what's called the veneer stage when you show up for your jury summons, but actually on the 12 person panel and every one of them has a bias and one of them is left-handed, you know, and one of them is redheaded. They might even be a left-handed redhead. I, I, I know one named Andy Lipka and some of them are Democrats and some of them are Republicans and some are gay and some are straight and Jew and gentle and all the rest with all sorts of interesting combinations and permutations intersectionally. And together, the 12 form a jury and they actually talk to each other. That's my idea of an impartial jury, even if it's composed of partial jurors, because we're all partial in certain respects. You know, we're either typically, you know, typically male or female. I I know there are a few non-binaries. Okay, we all have a certain biography and, 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 and point of view and none of us 
has a God's eye, perfect impartiality. But together as 12, under rules of evidence monitored by a judge, we become an impartial jury, we the jury. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question here is, is political affiliation, to the extent that one has one, a proxy for partiality? And, you're, you know, and because if it is, then then it's an issue. Here's what the judge in this, in the Trump case, um, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Judge Chutkan, I guess. This is what she had to say, or wrote, actually, in a uh, an opinion denying another January 6th defendant's uh, attempt to change the venue. It's a quote from her opinion. She said, jurors' political leanings are not by themselves evidence that those jurors cannot fairly and impartially consider the evidence presented and apply the law as instructed by the court. Amen. I believe that there is, you know, also higher precedent for that as well, that the Supreme Court has weighed in on this as well. Yes. And remember, the judge herself has so much more power than one individual juror. You know, even, you know, if it's Henry Fonda, he's got to, you know, pick up other people, you know, with making arguments. So, and it's not a disqualification for the judge that she was appointed by X or Y or voted for X or Y. That's not a proper basis for disqualification because if it were um, for the judge, everyone would be disqualified. Our judges almost all come from one side of the partisan aisle or the other because it's a two-party system. Very few of them are pure independents, truth be told. They were they were nominal Republicans and, and Democrats at the time, at least that they were put on the bench. Maybe some of them thereafter, you know, turned in their, their party card and, and, and God bless them if they choose to do that. They don't have to, but they're permitted to do that. But it can't be a disqualification that you're actually a member of one of our two main political parties or a third party for that matter. You're partial in a certain way individually, but if we put us all together, you're impartial, impartial, because you look like D.C. And D.C. is the relevant venue and vicinage because of Article 3 and the Sixth Amendment and the Boston Massacre and the Declaration of Independence. That's my argument. And I think what's left then is to to assure impartiality in the jury is the, is the voir dire. Um, so. um, and in and, and my view, if you're the brother-in-law of one of the lawyers or the parties, you shouldn't sit on that case, but you should sit on the next one. And so we're still going to have you, and that's not going to actually skew um, individual jury panels because that's going to be very random. Are you the brother-in-law? And by the way, if you're the brother-in-law or the sister-in-law of one of the lawyers, the parties, you shouldn't be the judge either. Although... You see uh, Justice Field sat in a case where his brother was the the lawyer. There are a whole bunch of cases in American history where, um, in fact, um, judges have have sat where close family members have been the lawyers. John Marshall in uh, in, in Marbury versus Madison, in my view, probably should have recused himself about three times over. One of the reasons is he personally was involved in the transaction. Another is that an affidavit was submitted by his own brother. And this was actually not an appellate procedure. It was a trial court where the facts mattered. So don't try this at home, uh, trial judge today. There are you know rules, um, but merely being a member of a party is not a basis because then every judge would have to disqualify. And I think also, you know, voting is, is, is kind of, is a poor proxy for how you're going to feel about a particular incident, a particular case. Voting is very multifactorial. There are many, many 
issues in a campaign and and who knows why someone chose to vote for one candidate as, as opposed to the other and plus um you know some people may may believe okay you know donald trump is is satanic or they or others may believe well it's a close call but you know altogether i'm going to vote for joe biden so so you know yeah. and those are very different right. situations in terms of who who could be on a jury anyway right. so the bottom line here is I think we we dug into this uh, with our teeth because there's a lot of originalist uh, aspects to it. And I think it's very, you know, many of us have heard of the Boston Massacre, but to really think about it in these deep terms, I think is very interesting. And uh, So, you know, I think we're going to wrap up with this, but we've got certainly a lot more to talk about uh, on the Trump case, uh, as you can see. Um, Right, just the two of us and with the great Will Bode and... Um, and the great Mike Paulson, I have lined up another guest. I'm not going to tease her name today, but you're going to want to hear from her. You've heard her name before and, and she's very interested and she's, she's writing in, in major publications about all these issues. So you've probably read some of her columns. Uh, maybe we'll announce that one next week. Okay. All right. Well, until then, thank you.